great. Thank you, Lucy. That was brilliant. Thank you to the band as well. Great time of worship, actually. There's a real sense of the presence of God in our worship this morning, which is just really tremendous. So, um, do we like the moody slide? I like the moody slide. Matt d- designed it. He sent round a load of, um, of how shall I put it, um, suggestions for slides. Uh, and some of them were really far too tame. But this one was just excellent. It was just so dark and moody with the sort of, you know, smoke in the background and, you know, looking really, um, you know, really menacing almost. Uh, and so um, these, the series we're doing, Light or Dark, You Decide, Part 2. Uh, and um, Going for Broke is the title, but um, it's a bit flexible, really. I'm sort of wondering whether it's the right title. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to be... Um, I'm continuing from Tim. Tim tackled Chapter 1. Uh, I'm tackling Chapter 3. Uh, and between you and me, um, both chapters are pretty grim, <laughs> okay? Just to, um, you know, just prepare you. Yeah, they are both fairly grim chapters. Uh, and so as um, Tim tackled all sorts of things that were wrong with Israel and Judah in Chapter 1, um, I very much continue that theme but fortunately, we'll be breaking bread at the end of this, <laughs> and I will talk about that and why it's so good to break bread um, after we um, look at this chapter together. Now, I don't know, has anyone watched um, Prime Minister's Question Time recently? It takes place on a Tuesday, doesn't it? Uh, I've been a bit poorly this week, so I've been watching rather too much daytime television. Uh, and uh, one of the things you can watch is, is PMQ, it's shortened to. It takes place on Tuesday, and Sakir Starmer uh, has an opportunity to pick about four or five topics uh, and basically assault the government with them. Uh, Usually he picks things like migration or the economy uh, or housing uh, or whatever, and he basically has a go at the government. Uh, And then what happens is um, the government have a robust defence. Rishi Sunak stands up and says his little bit, then, basically, as far as I can make out, there's a lot of name-calling that takes place. Uh, and, and then the whole place turns into a sort of farmyard with, with, with grunting and, 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 and calling and shouting. And, and you wonder how our democracy works uh, when, when Parliament looks more like a farmyard than it does. Um, but that, that's how it works. But I want you now to imagine a scene in which things change slightly. And Sakir Starmer is replaced by God. Yeah? Just imagine that. And imagine that, uh, that God brings four or five charges to the nation. Yeah? And uh, imagine, if you will, that there are four or five charges. And, and the difference between Sakir and God, there are a few differences, but... but but, but the key difference between Sakir and God is that, is that the charges that, that God brings are irrefutable. There's no right of reply. There's no sort of shout back. There's no grunting or groaning or whatever. Whatever God says is final and, and unanswerable, if you like. And also then that the judgment of God, the sort of decision of God, is also absolutely final. So whatever the consequence that God decides should happen for that sin just happens. No messing around, no debate, it just happens. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at four or five, look for five um, in a sense, accusations that God makes against the people of, of, of Israel and Judah 
in Isaiah chapter 3. Have we got Isaiah chapter 3? If we could just put it up. I'm just going to tackle them sort of um, um, a segment at a time. So the first area of judgment is economic. And we're going to look at that in 3, 1, 2, 3, roughly. Just check if there's any more scripture over the page. No, there isn't. Okay. So Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1 to 3 says this. See now the Lord, the all the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. All supplies of food, all supplies of water. The hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. I don't know why the clever enchanter is included in there. Actually, I would have thought God wouldn't be into clever enchanters, but anyway, that's by the by. So, God basically tackles the economy first. And he basically says to Israel, because you are against me, because you are not doing what I command, the first thing that I will be hitting is your economy. Yeah, I'll be taking away your, your supplies and I'll be removing your people. Now, quite literally, that did happen, actually. So, Isaiah brings the prophecy in roughly 700 BC, um, and by 587 BC, Jerusalem is captured by the Babylonians, the economy is wrecked, and all the skilled people are carted off to slavery. So anybody with any sort of ability ends up on a long trek to Babylon uh, in order to be, how shall I put it, rehomed there. Now, now that was common practice in in the Persian empires, you know, people look at the Bible and say, oh, it can't be true and whatever. But there are, you know, clear indications that the Bible is completely in keeping with, with historical facts and study. So that is literally what the Babylonians would do in order to uh, bring sort of, um, you know, intelligence to the center, as it were. That's what they do. They take the most intelligent people and, and take them into Babylon. And, of course, the other important thing that it did was it reduced the risk of rebellion back home. If you carted off all the intelligent people, then you had no one to raise a rebellion in Jerusalem. And so that was part of empire policy uh, um, of the day. Uh, and so what God is saying is a hundred years before it happens, God is saying, this is what is going to happen to you. Yeah? This is what is going to happen to your nation. Because your nation is opposed to me, there will be economic consequences. And I would say that very much what was true then is true now. I mean, nations that do not follow God's purposes, nations that stand against God, will suffer economically. Uh, I think that will happen to our nation, to be fair. Uh, and um, sadly. Uh, and, um, and we already see it sort of happening uh, to a certain extent. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because whenever you watch a sort of uh, an economic piece on the telly, you always get all these wonderful sets of statistics, don't you? You get inflation, and you get wages, and you get, um, I don't know, um, the, the, the borrowing and cost of borrowing, and, and all these, and then somehow the person commentates and says, well, if you get all these things right, your economy will be healthy. Do you mean that's all rubbish, as far as I can make it out? The Bible says, if you get what God wants, right then you'll be successful yeah if you do what god asks you'll have a successful economy 
yeah? And, and so what is true then is also true today. And so for each of these segments, I have a little sort of response. What is our response as Christians in terms of that? What is our response in terms of that God is in control of the economy? Well, I think our response is to be responsible um, people within the economy. Does that make sense? To set a good example in the way that we work. I mean, I've been looking at this and doing um, what I do is um, um, to earn a little bit of extra money, I've, I've got this sort of little side job which involves driving cars. And, and what I do is I go out and with, with a few guys and then we pick up cars around the southeast and we drive them back to a base in Camberley. It's great fun, actually. I really enjoy it. Uh, and, um, but what I've realized is that the opportunity to, how shall I put it, engage in a bit of light scamming is, is endless, yeah? You know, the opportunity to, for example, on the last car, what I could do is I could, I could get my last car and then I could stop for a coffee and have a really nice long coffee and then drop it off a bit later. Or I could do a bit of shopping. Um, or I could take the scenic route back to base, yeah? Do you mean, now it might be my rather perverse mind that sort of, you know, dreams up all these ways that I could do this, and can I just say that I don't, yeah? But, but there's all sorts of ways in which, how shall I put it, I can just slightly fiddle the system, yeah? Do you know, if you work from home, for example, if you're a home worker, just think of how you can end up doing washing up, loading the dishwasher, cleaning the house, all within your work hours. Do you mean it's all very easy to do? Can I just say? And so what I'm saying is that, do you mean, I think God wants us to be responsible in terms of as economic citizens. So with each of these areas, I'm talking about how we as Christians can, in a sense, fight against the trend. Yeah, we can go against society in the way that society works. And so that's the first area, and that is economic. So if we can move on to the next area, which is around leadership. And again, God says this, I will make mere use their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress one another, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise against the old, the nobody against the honored. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, you have a cloak, be our leader, please. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day, he will cry out, that man, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of these people. And again, when the judgment of God is upon a nation, there is a crisis in leadership. That was true then. It was true in terms of Israel. Israel has a succession of awful kings. Judah had a mixed bag of kings, ranging from awful to not bad. Uh, and so there was this sort of leadership problem that occurred because the nation was under the judgment of God. Now it seems to me that at the moment, looking at the leadership around the world, and I'm not just picking the UK, but looking at leadership around the world, the whole world is currently under the judgment of God. Why? Because the nature of leadership in this world is increasingly awful. Yeah, regardless of political spectrum, I mean, if you look at the US, if you look at Russia, if you look at China, if you look all around the world, leadership is failing badly. Badly. 
And that is a sign of the judgment of God. Actually, whenever you see leadership fail badly, you know, I think we're relatively well off in this country, I have to say. You know, I know we're very critical of our political leaders. But actually, you know, if you look at Rishi Sunak and then compare him to you know, Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin or you know, the North Korean guy, you know, he's a positive saint. Yeah? And so leadership is in crisis when a world or a nation is under the judgment of God. And so we need to consider that. And we need to, need to um, in a sense, reflect on that. And, and so I put as our response, because leadership is in crisis, we as Christians need to step into leadership and we need to take responsibility. Yeah. We need to take responsibility in our families. We need to take responsibility with our wives and husbands. We need to make decisions that are godly. In the workplace, we need to step up and take responsibility. Yeah, and we need to exercise godly leadership. In the local community, we need to step up and take godly responsibility. There's never been a more important time for us as Christians, in whatever situation you find yourself in, to step up and take responsibility in leadership. Wherever you find yourself, in the workplace, yeah? And you may think, or you may say to me, oh, Dave, I've, I've got a relatively junior job. Yeah, do you mean I'm not, you know, I just do this or I do that. But by leadership, I don't mean you being at the top of the pile. I mean you leading people in a godly way. You know, in terms of, I don't know, being in charge of a project and, and, and then engaging in that project with Christian values of openness and honesty and consultation and trust. And Does that make sense? You know, we can lead and not be top of the pile. Yeah, and people can look at us and say, yes, that person is a godly leader in any one particular situation. So wherever you find yourself, I'm going to pray for us now. Lord, wherever we find ourselves in a, uh, if we're selling stuff in a shop, if we're um, engaged in the media or we're engaged in um, public um, works, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you help us to step into leadership in a good way. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. You remember Daniel, he did that, didn't he, when he was carted off into captivity. He stepped into leadership and led in a godly way. So a second mark of the judgment of God is a collapse in leadership. Okay, a third mark uh, this is a tricky area, but I'm going to tackle it anyway, is morality. Uh, and uh, we begin at verse 8. Let's go to verse 8, if that's okay. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their face testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, they have brought disaster upon themselves. If you want um, another New Testament scripture that speaks of declining morality, look at the latter uh, part of Romans chapter 1, in which Paul summarizes a process of decline, basically, um, into the heart of darkness. Um, as a society declines, it does what our, it, it, it basically parades sin as righteousness. Yeah, as a society declines, it, it, it proclaims the sin and declares that actually it's right. Um, and that is what's happening in our 
society today, very sadly. Every sexual permutation is now permissible and indeed held up to be good. So the values of tolerance, the values of non-judgmentalism, the values of um, freedom are held up as being all important and everything becomes permissible. Not just permissible, but right. And then those who um, seek to stand against this tide of darkness are accused of being judgmental, hypocritical, behind the times, and then are automatically cancelled. Yeah? Now, this is a really tricky area. Can I just say, for those of you in different, you know, different work settings, this is a really tough, tough area to, in a sense, work within. And we need to think about that. And I'm going to talk about our response in a minute. But um, you know, a classic example of this would be J.K. Rowling. Uh, she um, has been cancelled widely in our society because she questioned the whole, um, the whole um, transgender principle that people who change their sex then acquire the identity of that new sex, so men become women, or vice, vice versa. So she challenged that. Um, so she basically, she challenged whether transgender men or women can claim all the rights and privileges of their new gender identity. And she said, I, I, I don't believe that that's the case. She was shot down in flames. I mean, all her cast, must have been tough actually, all of her younger cast came against her and basically said that she was wrong. Uh, and, and so she's been absolutely mauled uh, in, in the press for saying something that was really was quite simple. Uh, and in my mind, actually not hugely controversial, but clearly in today's society it is. And so we do find ourselves in a really tricky position, don't we, as Christians? Uh, and but what is our response? Um, you know, how should we um, respond to that? A few things to say. Firstly, lead by example. As Christians, we need to show what it is to be godly in our own relationships. If you're married, work on your marriage and have that as a shining example to those around you that heterosexual marriage <laughs> works, basically. Yeah? Do you mean, and, and, and really work on it and make sure it works as well. Do you mean, I, I'm really worried about even Christian couples, that the older they become, how easy it is to fall out of love with your partner, say it as it is. Yeah, how easy it is to drift. Do you mean, I, I've spotted a number of Christian marriages over the years where I've just been saddened by the way that, that, that it's almost as if the, 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 the two members of the couple have not really been in love with each other and have fallen out of love, basically. And do you mean that is tragic and speaks volumes to those around? Does that make sense? Yeah, so we need to make sure that our marriages are really strong and that we stay deeply in love with the person that God has put us with and that we stay really bound to them and we stay really... <laughs> you know, as a statement to the world that this works, yeah? Or if you're single, you know, you engage in relationships in a godly way, yeah? And again, you, people will look at what you do far more than what you say, won't they? And if they look at you and they look at the way that you're engaging in relationships, you're doing so in a godly manner, 
example counts. That's my first bit of advice. My second bit of advice is be informed. Yeah, you know, get to understand the, the, the discussion. I find far too many Christians engage in discussion with their non-Christian friends and are frankly, appallingly ignorant. Yeah, appallingly ignorant. Yeah, and they don't look at the, the material, they don't study it, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, if, if we're going to engage in a conversation, we need to know our material. Yeah, simply saying, oh, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah, Do you mean, it's just crass. Say it, you know, it's just crass. How many times have I heard that from various friends? <coughs> and I thought, yeah, okay, you know, Clearly, you've got a few catchphrases that you spit out from time to time. But that's not engaging in meaningful discussion, is it? So that's my second area. Thirdly, be loving. Be loving. We're all fallen. Uh, I, I remember reading one commentator who said, basically, we're all sexual sinners. Yeah? Do you mean, is there a, is there a difference between fantasizing about someone who's not your marriage partner and fantasizing about someone of the same sex? And the answer is no. It's no difference. Yeah. Given if we do one, we're just, just as sinful as the other. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, again, you know, I've been in discussion groups where, where usually it's guys have gone on and on about transgender or gone on and about same-sex attraction and then have a, a basically um, dismissed their own sort of, you know, looking at dodgy films or whatever as being a sort of minor... A minor offence, yeah. It's not. I mean, it's all an offence to God. <coughs> so we're all fallen, and be wise. Choose your words carefully. Choose your conversations carefully. And finally, um, we need to sometimes be prepared to pay a price. Um, I'm particularly struck by um, Kate Forbes. Kate Forbes was a candidate to become leader of the SNP during the election that took place, I think it was last year. Uh, and here's a, a summary of her position. When questioned, she dared to say that in principle she disagreed with gay marriage and had been an SNP at the time she would have voted against it. She was also opposed to the Gender Recognition Act. And then, in what the Daily Mail described as a spectacular meltdown, Forbes said that sex is for marriage alone. Do you mean, in our society, that is a spectacular meltdown. Oh, thank you so much. It is a spectacular. No, it's so out of date to say that sex is for marriage alone now. It's just, people just laugh at it, don't they? You know, and so the Daily Mail describe it, a godly principle, as a spectacular meltdown. Yeah? Isn't that extraordinary? Forbes said sex is for marriage. To make matters even worse, she could face an internal SNP disciplinary probe. This was a couple of years ago, I don't know if you get it. After telling ITV, I believe that a trans woman is a biological male who identifies as a woman. Apparently that was hugely controversial. That position wrecked her chances of leading the SNP. It literally put her out of the running. Yeah, and, and the SNP got a far less able leader as a consequence. Yeah. And that was the price that she paid for her Christian beliefs. So sometimes, dear brothers and sisters, there is a price to pay. You know, I, I have a question. I'm thinking about going back into mental health social work and getting involved again. But I know 
that I will then need to go down a path of 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 going along with with you know some of this stuff, yeah, uh, and and presumably having to agree to it. I, mean, I don't know what the process looks like, but it might involve that. And then I will face the dilemma: is that a path that I go down? Yeah. So, sorry, quite a heavy topic, isn't it? It's quite a difficult area. But but we're living in a society where morality is is deteriorating, where society is failing. Yeah. If you look at history, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and you look at the fall of the Roman Empire, and you look at the invaders from the north and the time when they invaded, and you look at the state, their morality, and their state of morality, it was very similar to Western Europe now, is, I mean, is all that I would say. In fact, I'm going I'm to be really out there and say that if God decided that Vladimir Putin should invade the whole of Europe and take us over, because our society was so decadent and so depraved, it wouldn't surprise me. Sorry, that is a really, a really almost outrageous statement. But I'll, I'll, I'll say it. I mean, God doesn't necessarily take godly people to deal with decadent societies. Nebuchadnezzar was not very godly when he invaded Jerusalem. Yeah? And so I think sometimes, you know, in terms of we sort of sit there and we're all very proud as Westerners and, and we do mean we think, you know, yeah, that we're the in the right and he's in the in the wrong. Yeah, but actually our society is thoroughly, thoroughly wrecked. I'm sorry, I apologies for for you know <laughs> for depressing you all today. Yeah. But um that's how it is. And so all of these, in a sense, God could be speaking to our society today as he writes his words. Quite easily. I mean, the, the, in a sense, the, the sentences are easily just, just come across the years and, and apply to us. Yeah? And so um, a couple more. And then we will break bread together and we will celebrate the fact that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. <laughs> but, but I'm going to carry on doing the condemnation before I get to that. Okay, um, and so in verse 13, we pick up on the fact, care for the poor and needy. This is quite important, actually. The Lord takes his place in his court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leader, leaders of his people. It is you that have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Do you notice the connection between the vineyard, the economic stability of a, of a nation, and, and care for the poor? The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord Almighty. Okay, it was Mahatma Gandhi in his fight against the caste system in India who said a nation's greatness is judged by the extent to which it treats its weakest members. And I would say that God agrees with him. Yeah? That God judges a society by the extent to which it treats its weakest members. Members, look after your weakest members and you will be successful, is what the Bible says. Don't look after them and you won't, is, is more or less what Scripture says, actually. And so then, do you know, I think this, this country has a mixed record in terms of looking after the poor and needy. 
given I'm, I'm given I'm particularly how should I put it particularly perturbed it, during my week uh, during my week of sickness I watched um, a program on ITVX which was Mr Bates versus the post office which was really good but really depressing yeah it's basically a story of about several hundred sub postmasters yeah who who are using this horizon system that is faulty and and totally messes up their returns basically and and so many of them were accused of 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 um scamming the post office to the tune of 30 40,000 pounds and some went to prison some committed suicide some lost their reputation in the local community some had to make up the shortfall from their own pockets and what staggered me was how complacent society was and government was about the whole thing. They couldn't care less. In fact, it was just a couple of MPs. Chris and I were just discussing it. A couple of them, one Labour MP and one, one Tory MP, actually, North Hampshire MP. I think James Abuthnot was his name, and he appears in the programme as, as repping um, one of the sub-postmasters. Yeah? But it, it was staggering how much people couldn't care about little people. Does that make sense? How much big corporations, how much government just allowed this injustice to carry on for so long. Just extraordinary. And, and it's caused me to rethink. I do mean, I've, in terms of my upbringing, I've always been taught to sort of trust the British system. Does that make sense? It's fair. It's honest. You know, the justice system is fair. I mean, it's all, you know, but actually, as I looked at this programme, I thought, no, I don't know, I don't know whether I, I, I agree with that anymore. Yeah? That people get oppressed, that people get just mistreated due to, due to just sheer indifference. Uh, and so I looked at that and I thought, my goodness, I, our society is not improving in terms of this whole area, all sorts of areas which I could go into. But that was one that I just sort of, in a sense, identified recently. Other examples, Grenfell Tower, the elderly in care homes during COVID. Yeah, all areas where the, 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 the most needy have suffered through the indifference of society. Yeah? And we, dear brothers and sisters, I'm going to have a quick drink. We, dear brothers and sisters, have a duty to stand against that and to look after the poor and vulnerable around us. Yeah? Now, I'm not saying that you are responsible for the fate of 700 postal workers through the UK, but you are responsible for members of your family. You are responsible for your neighbours and you are responsible for needy people around you. Yeah, I was particularly challenged. I'm just going to share a couple of examples. I was really challenged back in the autumn. I felt God say to me, I want you to visit your parents every week. I hadn't been. I'd been seeing them perhaps every month or so. And I felt God say, I, w I want you to be responsible. There was a, there's a scripture which challenged me on that, wasn't it? Which was, even the heathens look after their relatives better than you lot do. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I think Paul said. And I, I read that and I thought, well, even the heathens look after their relatives better than you bunch of callous Christians, basically. And I felt, yeah, I, do, I need to do something about that. And so God said to me, visit your folks every week. So I've been trying to do that. I missed last week because I was poorly. 
Now, for some of you, that may not be possible. You can still email them. You can still ring them. You can still be in touch, can't you? And keep contact. And do you know how valuable it is to, 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 to relatives? My parents, I think, I hope, really enjoy my visit. We chat, we laugh, we discuss stuff, we reminisce. We, you know, and they won't be around forever. So it blesses me as well. But just to say, you know, if you've got relatives around you that are needy, make sure you're looking after them. That's my first point. Um, my, my second point is um, care for those who are vulnerable around you. Um, Neighbours. Um, do you mean, again, I'll, I'll give you an example, which is a mixed bag for me. I, tomorrow, um, um, I go up to Stoke to do the funeral for Tony Tranter, who died fairly recently. Uh, and actually, I have, I was saying to his nephew, do you, mean that I, do you mean I was really good in the early years when, when he was living just opposite? I visited him regularly and looked after him. But being a, being a, a useless social worker, and this is sort of almost inbred into me, the moment he moved into a home, I sort of stopped visiting him. I mean, that's what I did when I was a social worker. Whenever I moved people into homes, I stopped visiting them. And I got into that the really bad habit of doing that. And so I had to say to the nephew, actually, I'm really sorry. I, I wasn't there for Tony in his later years. You know, I was a good friend to him while he was at, um, um, you know, on, on Moneygate Lane. Uh, but actually, in his later years, I, I rather let the site down. And, I, and then I said, you know, feel free not to select me <laughs> to, um, you know, to conduct his funeral. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was very forgiving, the nephew and, and, and whatever. But again, I felt, I felt God prompt and say, Dave, you, you, you know, that was poor, basically. That was poor. You know, you looked after him, you know, for a good length of time. Why didn't you finish off? Why didn't you follow through and look after him for the whole stretch? Yeah, because God cares. He really does. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the same is true for all of us. You know, are there people around you that you should be looking after? That you should be popping in on? How are you? You got your shopping in? You need anything? You need me to pop around the corner and get you a little something? Yeah? We all have people, and God will be putting people right on your hearts right now, I'm telling you for free. Yeah, and that you could be reaching out to. And so, as I said, tomorrow I'll be conducting a funeral with obviously fond memories of Tony. We did a lot together. We had good fun. We went all sorts of places and whatever. But also with a tinge of regret on my part that I wasn't completely faithful to him. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Lord, for that I'm sorry, and uh, I ask for your forgiveness. Uh, and, Lord, I pray for all of us here that you would help us to really look out for those who are needy around us and follow through in terms of caring for them. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> My last little section, do I don't think it really applies to us, but I'm going to say it anyway, is around the theme of stuff, I've called it. Stuff. We start at verse 16. The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty. They walk around with outstretched necks. They flirt with their eyes. They strut with their swaying hips. God looks at the way that women strut with their hips. Did you realize that? In fact, there's a song, isn't there, called them, My Girlfriend Walks Like Rihanna. Has anyone heard it? And so presumably, Rihanna struts with her hips, does she? I guess. Does anyone know how Rihanna walks? No, I'm looking at all the ladies, and they're looking at me saying, don't look at me, please. 
Don't embarrass me. Do you mean, does Rihanna strut? Oh, she probably does. Anyway, they strut with their swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. The Lord will bring swords on the heads of the women of Zion. They will make their scalps bald. Fairly grim stuff, actually. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles, the headbands, crescent necklaces. Yet we then get a huge list of stuff. The earrings, the bracelets, the veils, headdresses, anklets, sashes, perfume bottles, signet rings, nose rings, fine robes, capes, cloaks, purses, mirrors, linen garments, tiaras, and shawls. Even the lowly shawl gets a pasting. Yeah? And what really disturbs me is how much God knows about the fashion situation back in 500 BC. Well, 700 BC. That really disturbs me. Because <laughs> presumably, God is as much up to date on the fashion situation today as he is on the fashion situation in Jerusalem in 700 BC. God is just as much up to date with the, the, the Louis Vuittons and the Chanel's and the Paco Rabans and, and the Gucci's. And, and he knows all of that. Is that a Gucci rucksack? <laughs> John Lewis. I think you'll probably be all right, Emily, but, Emma, but you just be, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it disturbing, though, that God knows it all? I find that I found that deeply disturbing, and also that He's just thoroughly unimpressed. Yeah, the the clutter and junk that we attach to our lives, God is really not very impressed with it. That is terrifying, isn't it? I, I find that absolutely terrifying. He just really is unimpressed. Yeah, there's a scripture, isn't there? Man looks at the outward appearance. I've adjusted this slightly. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord couldn't care less about the outward appearance because he's looking at the heart. Yeah? And can I just say, in the um, interest of equality, I think this applies just as much to men as it does to women. You know, men have their own um, collection of stuff that they're attached to, be it hobbies, or cars. I mentioned cars, didn't I? And I mentioned part of the reason I drive these cars is they're really flashy and I really like driving them. And, and you know, I drive this ja Jaguar, um, whatever it is, do you mean? And I put the foot down and there's a roar of the engine and the acceleration is just breathtaking and you know, all the rest of it. But God couldn't care less. To tell you to free, couldn't care less with my naught to sixty is in three seconds or in half an hour. Yeah, he really isn't bothered at all. In fact, I think he'd prefer it to be in half an hour than three point five seconds or whatever. And so, as my final salvo. God calls us to resist the siren call of the world, which is massive, isn't it? The advertising, all the junk that we see advertised on telly, because you're worth it, you know, um, just do it, uh, you know, buy Nike, you know, buy the latest iPhone. I had a conversation with a couple, and they're very, you know, I, you know, I love them dearly, but for them, they couldn't survive without the latest iPhone. 
And I said, well, what's the difference between an iPhone 15 and an iPhone 16, whatever? And they said, oh, well, the quality of the camera is slightly better. Is that really important? Yeah. And so, you know, in a sense, what is your, what is your poison, I would invite us to consider? Uh, and we'll all have, you know, be it cars, be it junk, whatever. That don't impress me much, says God and Shania Twain. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, on that happy note, uh, we draw to a conclusion. Uh, God is smart. God sees all. God saw Judah and Israel back then. He sees our nation now. He sees the economy. He sees the quality of leadership. He sees our care for the poor. He sees our morality. And he sees our obsession with junk. And he's not impressed. Yeah. But fortunately, Jesus died on the cross for us. Let's go back to the imagined scene of, of, of God as Keir Starmer. Yeah, and God is making the accusation, and it's us who are now in the dock as individuals. Now, if God was to stand and accuse my life, he would have an awful lot of material to work with. And I was hazard a guess that if he was to stand in accusation of your life, he would equally have an awful lot of material to work with on a number of these different areas. I've, I've, you know, I mentioned my slackness in terms of looking after my friend as, a, as an example, yeah? But in a number of these areas, God could write reams, pages and pages and pages of detailed stuff, just like we get detailed stuff here, in which God could make an accusation, yeah? And then what should happen is that we should then face the judgment in. In Judah's case, it was cast off into captivity, yeah. But in our case, as followers of Christ, we get to step out of the dock, and Jesus steps into the dock for the sentencing. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't that incredible? And so as we step out, we are declared free, and Jesus faces the full force of the judgment of God by his death on the cross, yeah? And so that charge sheet is, in a sense, wiped for us and is placed on Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin. That is a staggering statement, isn't it? Jesus, perfect in every way, without blemish, without sin, without fault through his entire life, um, yeah, completely, completely pure, completely righteous, completely, completely without accusation, yeah, then becomes the embodiment of sin. I mean, it's literally like his body is just filled up with the whole of humanity's sin. And, and then the Bible says he becomes sin. God incarnate becomes sin incarnate on the cross, that is staggering, absolutely staggering. And a healthy dose of that sin is your sin and my sin. Yeah? 
And so, as we break bread together, if we could have the band up, if we could have Robin, are you administering? Thank you. Let's just reflect on that, shall we? Let's just remind ourselves that, you know, as I said, the charge sheet against us is enormous, but Christ has paid the price. Yeah. And so if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please come up, please join us. If you don't, just, you know, don't get involved, basically, is what I would say. Yeah. Uh, and as we do so, let's just remember the tremendous price that Jesus has paid. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? And just good to remind ourselves as we celebrate together. Dear Lord, thank you for our time together. Lord, thank you for this serious scripture, which is very tough in many ways. Uh, but Lord, uh, firstly, I pray that uh, uh, we'd reflect that we are free from condemnation and judgment. And also, if there's any sort of particular areas that you want us to um, tidy up our act, dare I say it, uh, empower us by your Holy Spirit to be able to do so. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.